This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What I'd like to do in this lecture is, um, I don't know, uh, I'd like to make it a little interactive. And I know um, I may have to stop that after a while if it looks like we're going too long. Um, but um, please feel free to interrupt me as we go. We're, we're going to sort of move through this um, talking about three different ways of dealing with um, surgical treatment for our beta cell replacement as uh, a way we can perhaps treat and ultimately uh, really uh, make a dent in um, uh, the treatment of diabetes. Um, so the first part is going to be on solid organ pancreas transplantation. Uh, Chris and I are both pancreas transplant surgeons, and so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Then I'm going to talk about the second uh, phase of the lecture is going to be about cellular transplants, um, where we just um, we're, we're transplanting the whole pancreas, really for five percent of the cells that sit in these things called the islets of Langerhans, and so. Uh, it makes sense if we could just isolate those islet cells out of the pancreas and um, and transplant those. It's a much easier operation. So um, that's not any, really even an operation. It's a procedure. And then finally, I'm going to talk about a, a strategy that I think um, uh, will ultimately be a real uh, uh, a real cure for diabetes. Um, uh, in terms of being able to provide enough of this donor tissue. Right now, we're so dependent on, uh, on uh, deceased donors. Um, in, the, in the United States, um, we're just in the Bay Area, we have about 250 trans, we have 250 donors a year. Those are people who, whose families have generously consented to donate. Um, you, you can imagine, just to give you an idea of what the, our kidney transplant waiting list is at, at UCSF, it's almost 5,000 people. And we're only doing 250 donors a year. And we have to share those organs with a couple of other institutions. So, so you can see we've got a real problem with donor source. And we have to figure out a better strategy. So the last part of the lecture is going to be um, how we can get away from using uh, deceased donors as a, as a w means for moving forward with uh, transplantation. So I am, um, uh, Dr. Fries and I also do liver and kidney transplants. And I, I have to tell you, of all the things that we're doing in the world of transplantation, I think the, great, the, the, the most significant advances are happening in the world of, of um, beta cell therapy and pancreas transplantation. We've gotten better at pancreas transplants. We've gotten better at islet transplants in terms of producing insulin independence. I'll talk about both of those. We can make people insulin independent with a pancreas or an islet transplant. So we have a cure for diabetes. It just is um, not applicable to the vast number of people that have diabetes. We know that the hemoglobin A1C normalizes. What is hemoglobin A1C? It's, it's a monitor. So when I don't know if any of you have diabetes. Um, I'm sure some of you do. Um, uh, if, if you really take good care of yourself and you can keep your carbohydrate load under control, um, you can normalize your hemoglobin A1C. So hemoglobin A1C is a, is a way we can draw your blood and see uh, whether you have glycosylated hemoglobin, which means your control isn't so good. 
So normally hemoglobin A1Cs are less than maybe 6.8 is, is considered the high end of normal. Uh, so a lot of folks who have diabetes live, live, in, live by this number every day. They, every month they check, oh, I've got good control because my hemoglobin A1C is less than 6.8. So you do a pancreas transplant, it normalizes. And, and not only that, if you have a successful transplant, you can prevent the devastating complications of diabetes. So the retinopathy that can lead to blindness, the nephropathy that can lead to kidney failure, neuropathies, tingling in the fingers and, and, and toes that uh, lead to your inability to um, actually feel where you're walking. So you uh, can do some significant damage to your bones in your, in, in your legs. So this was the cover of the American Journal of Transplantation uh, just over a year ago. And it, it, it was really interesting. They based this cover on um, some of the work that we had done here at UCSF. And it, it's asking the question, what's the best treatment for diabetes? Is it, is it the, this guy here, the, that's a pancreas? Is it this guy here, those are islet cells? Or is it this guy in the back that's, that's a computer? You know, we've, we could put a man on the moon. It seems to me you could put a chip into your body that can sense blood sugar and deliver insulin appropriately. It's called a closed-loose pump, and there's a lot of companies out here in the Bay Area that are perfecting um, uh, the closed-loop pump as a easier treatment for diabetes. So this, this article asked, which one of these is going to win at the poker table? Well, we'll have that discussion now. So um, many years ago, there was a trial called the DCCT trial, which was a trial where um, people with diabetes were, even, were either treated with standard insulin therapy, intensive insulin therapy. This is the standard insulin therapy is this red line. Um, intensive insulin therapy, which is this blue line or a pancreas transplant, which is this yellow line. Well, here's the line right here, the solid line. That's the normal hemoglobin A1C level. And you could see the pancreas transplants, boy, they put you right in that normal range and they keep you there. So pancreas transplants work. It's just a big operation. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. But the reason that I'm telling you about it is it tells you what the possibility is if we can replace these beta cells. Yes? Year four. Oh, and I can't tell you. You know, that's it's just a blip. It's it, because hemoglobin A1Cs vary even internally. So it's not a significant. I don't. I wouldn't say it's significant, and it's still well within the normal range. So, you know, there's no question that um, um, the the longer you go out, um, you know, graphs fail after some period of time. So, you know, maybe it's starting to go, but I, I don't think that's what that reflects. So the other thing that you have to know is people, there's a, there's a lot of folks who really, really do tight control this intensive line here of their, of their blood sugars. The problem is, is if you do it too tightly, you become hypoglycemic. And that's very dangerous because you, you know, when many of you may have seen it in, in, in folks with diabetes, they can um, lose consciousness or they get really goofy 
um, and um, they have to, you have to give them sugar really quickly or they get into a lot of trouble. And the more intensive the insulin therapy, the more they get into trouble. So um, just goes to show that really if we could replace the beta cells, they seem to be doing the best. We also know that if you can normalize your hemoglobin C, you get down here, you don't get those secondary complications of retinopathy, nephropathy, and neuropathy. And you can see this um, uh, as the hemoglobin A1C goes up, those secondary complications just start to happen. And that is why doctors and, and nurse practitioners are out there telling you to get your hemoglobin A1C under control. But it's not that easy, or it's much easier said than done. I, I can't even take an antibiotic for one week um, without screwing up the dosage and, and missing a dose. So my hat's off to the folks with diabetes who um, really try to be really fastidious. It's a challenge. So how do we do pancreas transplants? Um, I'm not going to go into the great technical details of that. There's a few things I do want to tell you. This is a pancreas over here, and this is a kidney over here. When we do a kidney transplant, we plug it into the blood vessels that go down to your legs. Um, and uh, we actually plug, usually plug the kidney into the blood vessels that go down to the left side and the pancreas into the right. Now, the pancreas, the thing that makes pancreas transplants so difficult is it's, it is an organ that when we're in medical school, we're taught never to play around with the pancreas because it is a fragile organ. Why is it fragile? Well, it happens to harbor these islets of Langerhans, but it's only 5% of the cells. It's these little islands in the pancreas. And the rest of it, about 85% of the pancreas, makes digestive enzymes. Now, you tell me how in the evolutionary scheme these little fragile islets ended up sitting in the pancreas. I can't give you an answer but that's where they are. And when people have type 1 diabetes, those little islet cells get attacked. It's not even the whole islets. The islets contain a bunch of hormones. One of the hormones is insulin. And if you look at the pancreas, it looks normal. If you look at the islets, it looks normal until you stain for beta cells. Beta cells are the cells that produce insulin. And lo and behold, type 1, people with type 1 diabetes don't have those cells anymore. It's an autoimmune process. So when we transplant the pancreas, if something goes wrong with it, those digestive enzymes get activated. The, the um, pancreas makes these digestive enzymes normally in the body. The pancreas sits right in the middle of the body in a really tough spot. And it drains, the digestive enzymes drain into the duodenum, the first part of the small bowel, and we sew the pancreas of the donor, a little segment of the duodenum of the donor, and we attach it to the recipient's bowel. So all those enzymes, we don't really care about them because folks with diabetes make normal amounts of the enzyme, um, but we have to get rid of them. And so the enzymes just drain into the bowel and then ultimately get absorbed. It is that anastomosis where we sew the bowel to the bowel the donor bowel to the recipient bowel. If the digestive enzymes get activated, it can wreak havoc. It can start digesting all the tissue and the blood vessels, and it becomes a very dangerous situation. 
And that is why pancreas transplants are technically challenging. We've learned how to do it. We've gotten really good at it. But we can only use the best quality donors. Now, that sounds a, a, a little weird, but when we talk about what's a, what's a good donor, a good donor is somebody who is young, um, maybe somebody who's had a trauma, otherwise perfectly healthy, but they were in a bad bike accident and they hit their head, and so they're brain dead. Those are the people that make very ideal donors. And their pancreas uh, doesn't have a lot of fat usually, um, and uh, it's the easiest to transplant. So I can't tell you enough. It's a challenging operation because we don't want to excite that pancreas. We don't want to get those digestive enzymes going. Uh, and so we only, um, about maybe somewhere on 15% of, remember I told you that there's about 250 donors in the Bay Area a year, only 20% of those, less than 20% of those are suitable for pancreas transplantation for the reasons that I just told you. So as we've gotten better at it, and I'm going to show you the results in just a second, we've extended the criteria for who can have a pancreas transplant. I don't want to confuse you too much because, by and large, because it's such a big operation and we have such few donors, we're, we have traditionally put a pancreas transplant into a patient who has diabetes and type 1 diabetes, that's the classic, and they've progressed to end-stage renal failure because, they're, because they've had problems controlling their diabetes their whole life. So they need a kidney transplant. And we maybe about 30 years ago decided let's do a pancreas with the kidney. Then they're, then they're not on insulin and they are not on dialysis. A really nice result. So the bulk of the pancreas transplants we're doing today, there's still about 80, 80% are simultaneous pancreas kidney transplants. But now we're also doing pancreas after kidney transplants and more interestingly, we were, we've done a few. Um, every year we do a few patients that don't have kidney failure, but they have diabetes that they cannot control. They end up having these hypoglycemic attacks. Their blood sugars go down, and they end up in the hospital, and they end up uh, afraid that they're going to end up in, in a coma because of low blood sugars. Those are the patients with life-threatening diabetes. And then those patients, we do a pancreas transplant in. But you understand, if we're doing a kidney transplant anyway, they're going to need immunosuppression, the drugs to prevent rejection. So we've, that's how we started. But now that we've gotten better, we're extending the criteria for it, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a second. So a lot of the data I'm going to show you is from... Um, uh, some data from our own institution, but some data from the National and International Transplant Registry. If you look at um, the uh, patient's survival who get a simultaneous pancreas kidney transplant, and we're talking five-year survival, uh, you can see that for all three classes of tra uh, transplants, and I'm just going to really focus on the simultaneous pancreas kidney transplants, that S SPK, the patient survival is around 85, close to 90% at five years, pretty good. What about the graft function? Graft function for the kidney, we, we, call, we, we say it's a success if they're not on dialysis. 
Uh, for the pancreas, we say it's a success if they're not on insulin. So, let, again, let's just look at simultaneous pancreas kidney transplants. Here's the results. 80% success out to five years for the kidney, and somewhere um, just over 85, I'm sorry, just over 77%, I think, for, for pancreas. So it's pretty sustained graft success. It's not 100%, uh, but it's pretty good. And, and then I think we've gotten so much better. Um, I, I don't know if you've been to lectures of when we talk about immunosuppression. I'm sure you've had a few of these lectures have included um, a discussion of, of the medication to prevent rejection. That's the Achilles heel of, of, of transplantation because we have to prevent rejection. So we have to slow down the immune system. In folks with diabetes, type 1 diabetes, it's even worse because they have an autoimmune disease. Their immune system went awry and they started to destroy their own beta cells. That's type 1 diabetes. When we do a pancreas transplant, these patients are still primed to attack the beta cells. They have the autoimmune disease. But now we're also putting in foreign tissue, allo, allo transplants, it's called, transplantation from somebody else, a, another human being. But they're not HLA matched. They're not tissue type matched. So now we have to overcome autoimmunity, the thing that caused the diabetes to begin with, and alloimmunity, the rejection of foreign tissue. We have figured this out. When I started in 1990 here at UCSF, our rejection rates of either the kidney or the pancreas were up over 80%. We figured out how to treat it, but every time you treat rejection, you give more immunosuppression. And immunosuppression does just that. It suppresses your immune system. So it makes you more vulnerable to infections and more vulnerable to cancers skin cancers especially. So we've gotten better at that. Look at that. We're down to 10 to 15% rejection rates um, using sort of novel immunosuppression. I'll talk a little bit about that later. So now that we've gotten good with treating patients with type 1 diabetes with pancreas transplants, we're wondering, can we expand the criteria a little bit? Can we go to older patients? Can we go to patients that are maybe um, uh, a, a little bit um, bigger? And most importantly, can we um, uh, push the limits to include patients with type 2 diabetes? What is type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes um, is many different kinds of diabetes. It's adult onset diabetes usually. And it's not autoimmune. It's because people perhaps, um, they, they get a me metabolic dysfunction. Sometimes it's from obesity. You've seen that. If you, if you lose weight, if you have diabetes and you lose weight, the diabetes can go away sometimes. But there's other people with adult onset diabetes that aren't particularly overweight. Um, they have a metabolic problem. They're, we don't really understand it, but we're now finding that we can maybe cure type 2 diabetes with pancreas transplants. And I'll say why that's relevant in just a minute. So I told you we wanted to start, mo most of our patients when we started to do this were type 1 diabetics who were in their maybe 20s and 30s. 
uh, and that's when they progress to end-stage renal failure. Uh, but now with the better management of diabetes, we, we find our, our um, uh, recipients aren't progressing to end-stage kidney disease until an older age. And if you look at the registry, look at this. The, the oldest patient population does just as well, maybe a little bit better than the young folks. So we're not limiting our recipients anymore. It really is about how good the heart is. Um, we got to make sure the heart will tolerate a major procedure. I'll talk about that too. But look at this. That green line is people um, getting transplanted, the SPK, simultaneous pancreas kidney transplants, with type 2 diabetes. And all of a sudden, it, from 1997, uh, to 2017, the frequency of people with type 2 diabetes has gone up to 18%. If we had an unlimited source of beta cells, we probably could manage type 2 diabetes as well. So we were looking at that. And look at this. If you look at patient survival for the type 1s and the type 2s, go out uh, three or four years, it's over 90%. And, and then... Um, look at the difference of uh, the um, insulin independence. Uh, the type 1s and the type 2s, they do almost equivalently. That's, that's not statistically significant. So I think we're going to start moving toward figuring out which type of people with type 2 diabetes can benefit. Chris talked about what an epidemic we're having. Um, it is... Um, uh, it is... I think maybe tenfold more common to have type 2 diabetes in the U.S. than type 1. And, um, yeah, sure. You began your talk by saying the major limiting factor was the availability of the organ. Absolutely. But yet now you've expanded the group <laughs> by a huge number. Hold that thought. Okay. Yes, you've hit the nail on the head. It's a problem. There's many patients who can benefit from it, not enough organs. Um, so you might ask why we even started to expand the criteria. Uh, because the patients with type 2 diabetes, there's many who look just like the type 1 diabetics. And why, why shouldn't they have a, sh a shot at it if, if they met certain criteria? It gets a little complicated. We'll get back to that because uh, that's the million-dollar question. If we had an unlimited source, then we would do type 1s and type 2s. Um, we limit the number of type 2s to... Um, uh, type 2 patients who sort of look like type 1, so they're not overweight and things like that. So um, uh, because now we're transplanting people with type 2 diabetes, um, type 1 diabetes is really much more prevalent in the Caucasian population, type 2 more common in um, um, people of African descent. And you can see um, that now that we've expanded the criteria, now uh, we've increased the frequency of transplantation in, in people of African descent. And there's one other group that I have to tell you about. Um, the last time I talked at this um, uh, at the, um, the mini med school was um, uh, about transplanting people infected with HIV, because back in 19, I started here in 1990, so I've seen the full spectrum of what can happen with HIV. And we started to see a number of type 1, people with type 1 diabetes who also unfortunately got HIV. And now we've done, I think, eight transplants, eight pancreas transplants in people with um, uh, type 1 diabetes. And we've had really great success. So HIV is no longer a contraindication to transplant. 
So let me just review a few things. The pros of successful pancreas transplant. It's a single organ. We can get insulin independence with a single organ. It prevents hypoglycemic unawareness. You don't see patients passing out from low blood sugars. It normalizes hemoglobin A1C. It improves the quality of life. I can tell you there are patients who have had pancreas transplants who have had tough operative courses, very tough. Every last one of them will ask you for another pancreas transplant if they've enjoyed any insulin independence at all. Um, you know, folks with diabetes tell me that they have dreams. In their dreams, they see themselves without insulin. That is their dream. And uh, that dream is realized with a pancreas transplant, and uh, it's a very motivating force. There's no question it improves the quality of life. I don't need to take a survey on that. Peripheral neuropathies, that tingling in the hand, tingling in the feet, that very, rarely, very slowly gets better. And most interestingly, if we do a pancreas with a kidney transplant, you don't get recurrent disease in the kidney transplant. So the same thing that caused diabetes to begin with, if we don't put a pancreas transplant in, the recipients will ultimately develop kidney failure in the transplanted kidney. If we do a pancreas with a kidney, that doesn't happen. So, wow, that sounds great. We don't have enough of them. Not only that, what's, an, what's another big problem? It is a big operation. You need a really good heart to tolerate this operation. And very few patients, and I'll show you how few in just a minute, um, are fortunate enough to get a pancreas transplant. So let's talk about the cells in the pancreas. Remember I told you uh, a pancreas is you know about this big? And it's like a flat as a pancake, but it's long. And we, we can isolate the 5% of cells in those islets and transplant those islets. How do we do that? Well, this is a little complicated, but if you look at this, this is um, a system that we set up in our lab here um, where this is, um, it looks like a bomb. You actually put the pancreas in that. And then you start to use this continuous circuit where you add an enzyme and gradually digest the pancreas. And as you do that, the islets start to come out. Um, the islets here are stained with dithazone. They stain islets red. All that white stuff, that's acinar tissue. So you can see the majority of the tissue is acinar tissue, not islets. The acinar tissue is what makes the digestive enzymes. We can then use um, a centrifuge and a density gradient to purify those islets. That's what the purified islets look like. They actually, you can see them, they, but they fit. The one million plus islets in a pancreas fit on the tip of my finger. And we can put them in a syringe and suspend them in one to two cc's of fluid. This is what the, the pancreatic duct looks like after we're done with the digestion. And then we take these cells that fit in one to two cc's of, of um, fluid, and our interventional radiologist can actually put a needle into the liver through the skin. They numb you up. And you, it could be done as a same-day procedure. And they cannulate what's called the portal system of the liver. It's a vein that goes into the liver. The islets flow out. 
And there they sit in the periphery of the liver and make insulin. And it's really cool. We, um, we never really had success with allo transplants in terms of getting insulin independence until the year 2000. And then James Shapiro, um, who was up in Edmonton, Canada, and his colleagues up there, found that if they just didn't give one infusion of islets into the liver, but did two or three from two or three donors, and avoided certain kinds of immunosuppression, they could get insulin independence. And in fact, they increased their insulin independent rate with islet transplants from around 10% all the way up to 90%. But here's a problem. Early on, the islets worked, but they only worked for one to two years, and then all of a sudden, they started to require insulin again. So many people wondered, why were the islet, whole pancreases were tolerating it. The islets didn't live. And there was a lot of speculation. But it turns out that the liver is not the best place to put islets, and we think maybe 20% of the islets survive when we put them in the, in the liver. The rest don't, don't survive. The other problem is we weren't using the right kind of immunosuppression. Since that time, and I don't want to go through every step of this, um, but the five-year insulin-independent rates have improved across the world. And uh, you can see right now, UCSF, here we are, we have 80% of our patients were insulin-independent at five years with a particular very potent immunosuppressive regimen that we used. So we're getting better at islet transplantation. This shows you that, that variability that you see in blood sugars, that this top line here, goes away when you get a successful islet graft engraftment. And the group up in Canada, they ultimately showed that those same things that got better with pancreas transplant, the retinopathy, the nephropathy got better with the cellular transplants. It wasn't quite as good. The islets, you saw five years, they were mostly working. By 10 years, not so, not so well. And part of the problem was the immunosuppression we use. The drugs to prevent rejection are very toxic to the islets. And they're probably toxic to the pancreas, but the um, the pancreas, all the islets survive when we transplant them. When we do an islet cell transplant, we think only 20% are surviving. There's two drugs. CNI stands for calcineurin inhibitors. You don't have to know anything about that except cyclosporin and Prograf, drugs you may have heard about, the common immunosuppressive agents. They're toxic to beta cells. They're toxic to the kidney. And what do we use to, to do immunosuppression? We use, um, we use a drug that um, uh, is toxic to the kidney that we transplant, and it's toxic to the beta cells. Well, without going into too much um, detail on this, there are two drugs that we were fortunate enough to experiment in our kidney transplant recipients that have no beta cell toxicity and no nephrotoxicity. They're not toxic to the kidney. They're not toxic to the beta cells. It's called Velocept. It's, uh, it's a drug that um, blocks the immune system. Um, when you have a 
T-cell, the T-cells cause rejection, and if you block some of the signals, the second signal to that T-cell from the antigen, instead of activating the T-cell, the T-cell becomes quiescent. And that's what Bilatisep does. So what I want you to remember about it is it's a drug that doesn't cause kidney damage and it doesn't cause toxicity to the beta cells, the cells that produce insulin. And there was another drug on the market, exact same criteria, doesn't cause kidney failure, um, doesn't cause kidney toxicity, and doesn't cause beta cell toxicity. It's called Efeluzumab or Raptiva. So we use those two drugs in, 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 a, in a trial that the JDRF sponsored, and this was sponsored in about the year 2002. Um, so I, I have the benefit of being old enough now that I've been able to follow some of these patients. And I, I called one of the patients this morning to see if she could come. She lives two blocks from the hospital. And I'm going to tell you about her. She couldn't come. She's down in Monterey um, and, and couldn't make it back up in time. Um, but I'm, I'm going to show you the results. The BEL right here, those are our um, patients who received Bilatisept. Afaluzumab is the patients that received uh, Raptiva. And you can see our, there's two patients who got one infusion of islets, insulin independent, out 10 years with one infusion of islets. That is a great result. Uh, yes, sir. So um, I, that's how I'm going to finish my talk because that's the other million-dollar question. You guys are hitting the, <laughs> the, the, the problems that we're dealing with. But I want to address that for just a second because in animal models, when Chris and I were, were working on our degrees in, um, in the lab, um, we were doing islet transplants in rats. And in 19, I started that in 1985. And we thought islet transplants was just around the corner because we put them into the kidney capsule, bizarrely enough. We just put them in different places. And in an animal model, we could get them work in the kidney capsule and we could get them to work in the liver. In humans, for some reason, the only place we could get engraftment was in the liver. And we also know that blood, so we inject it into the blood, and it goes out into the sinusoids of the liver. Blood is toxic to islets. And that's probably why 20% of them, 80% of them die. It's not the ideal spot, and that's a major problem. So these patients that are insulin independent, they probably are insulin independent with a very small percentage of the islets functioning. I think there's something else going on in those patients because I don't think it's enough islet mass to sustain them. But those two patients are still insulin independent. Um, one of the patients was insulin independent um, uh, for about a year. Then we gave her a second transplant, a second infusion, and um, chugged along for about another five years and then became insulin dependent, and um, that was that. Um, and so far we haven't moved forward with another transplant there. The third patient there um, was insulin independent for about five years and then um, gradually started to require a little bit of insulin and only very recently um, became uh, insulin dependent again. That's our one patient in this whole series that still uh, needs insulin because the next patient down had two transplants, loved to be insulin independent, and said, I want a third islet transplant and we didn't think it would be successful, so we did a pancreas transplant. And now she is insulin independent, 
in about 12 years. So um, of, of the patients, um, uh, three, three are insulin independent, one with a pancreas transplant, one just lost function, and um, uh, the other has partial function. Now the aphalusumab group, two patients in that group too, became insulin independent with a single infusion. Uh, I'm going to talk about that FA4 patient right here. That was a patient that I wanted to come tonight, but I'll tell you about her in a second. Uh, the other patient is on almost no immunosuppression. She lives in Colorado and is insulin independent greater than 10 years. So two of those patients too, insulin independent long term. Uh, one patient um, required um, a second infusion of islets at just about a year and a quarter and then stayed insulin independent for about another nine years, recently started to take oral, um, anti, uh, oral medication for diabetes. And then uh, two of the patients had two transplants, liked being insulin independent, and we went on to do pancreas transplants in both of them, and they're insulin independent now out more than 10 years. So pancreas transplants, a little bit bigger operation, um, but they sustain um, islet function for a longer period of time. So um, now I just want to show you what can happen with these um, patients who normalize their hemoglobin A1C. In the Bilatisep group, all five patients normalize their hemoglobin A1C, the same with the patients with efaluzumab. Um, when we give them a glucose challenge, and then measure C-peptide. C-peptide is a measure of your insulin production. The higher the C-peptide, it's, it, it, it's, it's a piece of the insulin. And they have a normal response to C-peptide. And most importantly, I wanted to show you this, because the glomerular filtration rate, which is a measure of kidney function, did not decrease. It actually got better in both groups. So this drug that we used, that avoided kidney toxicity um, and avoided beta cell toxicity um, worked. So um, we're, we're, we're pretty fond of these drugs. Um, Evoluzumid got pulled. I'm not even going to get It's not available anymore, but Bilatisept is. Now I'm going to tell you about one other very bizarre finding that we had. And this may play into some of the other lectures you've had um, on immunosuppression. In the patients that got afaluzumab, that's, that's um, the drug that's been pulled from the market. It's an adhesion. It blocks the way the T cells interact with the vascular endothelium. Suffice it to say that in those patients, for an unknown reason, this group of cells called the Tregs, the T regulatory lymphocytes, went up after we gave the drug. This is something we didn't see. Now, I, again, I don't know how many lectures you've had about the Tregs. The T regulatory lymphocytes, those are the good guys. They, they're the cells that come in to quiet down the immune response. So for some reason, in these patients that got afaluzumab, the frequency of those cells in the periphery went up. And if you look at this one patient, 70% of her circulating lymphocytes were T regulatory lymphocytes, the good guys. We didn't see that with Bilatisept, and it was another good drug. But the reason I bring up this, this one patient here is she had an incredible course. And I just 
want to tell you, um, she developed, remember I told you a lot of immunosuppression can cause cancers? She had about, at about four years, she developed what's called lymphoproliferative disease, which is a proliferation of lymphocytes that is a, a transition into cancer. And when we see that, we have to stop immunosuppression. And we stopped her immunosuppression um, and treated the lymphoproliferative disease with a drug called rituximab. And the disease went away. But we did not want to put her back on immunosuppression. We did not want to risk her life for insulin independence. And she's, I wish she was here because she she, she's great with audiences. She talks about it because I said to her, Sandra, you know, do you want to, um, do you want to um, uh, stop immunosuppression? And, and she said, absolutely. She said, I love being insulin independent, but I need my immune system back. So we stopped immunosuppression. And that was six years ago. And she's still insulin independent. So she's insulin independent on no drugs. We've made her tolerant. Um, I'm not really proud of the way we made her tolerant. Um, but this combination of drugs, and I think it's that really profound frequency of T-regulatory lymphocytes that were, were seen in the beginning, um, that tricked the immune system into thinking the cells were her own. And <clears throat> there is, um, Chris, were there any lectures on T-reg therapy? So these, one of the things that's going on at UCSF and at many places across the country they're trying to generate these T-regulatory lymphocytes, the good guys, the ones that suppress the immune system. And um, I can't really tell you how those trials are going, um, but she naturally induced her own T-regulatory lymphocytes, and indeed, she's tolerant to this day. And, and she could um, uh, really... Um, I, I wish she, she would come here, because she, um, she was a perfect recipient because really understood what was going on and um, knew when to call it quits and then got lucky. She says she's, she wanted you to know she feels like she's the luckiest person, um, although her path to get there was not always so easy. So uh, now, remember I told you this picture that was um, uh, generated in the American Journal of Transplant. Um, it was the cover because it was really the first time that the results of islet transplantation were getting close to that of whole pancreas transplants. And so they were asking this question, which should we do again? Um, unfortunately, um, I don't, uh, it, it's so problematic. Look at the cost of pancreas transplants and islet transplants. They're the same, uh, exorbitant. But insurance will not pay for islet transplants. It is not FDA approved in the United States. And that, you are going to see a lot in the media in the next six months about that because pretty much islet transplants outside of experimental protocols has been stopped in the United States. All the results, us, the, we did an NIH-sponsored trial in the United States to get this approved. The trial finished six years ago. Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, they all used our results to get their governments to pay. But they have national health insurance. And uh, they support islet transplants. 
not in the U.S. We've been shut down. I am doing a clinical trial that I'm going to get to in just a second. Um, but outside of clinical trials, we haven't been able to do it. We're trying to change, we're trying to change it um, uh, to get it uh, better. Okay, now I'm going to stop talking about, yes? Yes, and but there's another part of it. So this is going to sound very, very vulgar to you now. Um, when we do a solid organ transplant, Medicare has to pay for the cost of all the donors. Um, but <laughs> the way it works is when a, a donor is declared brain dead, and a family has seen through this tragedy uh, and volunteered that they could have their organs for transplantation. The patients are in an intensive care unit on life support. And so um, I can't tell you how much it costs to keep a patient on life support in an intensive care unit. It's somewhere around $15,000 a day. Um, it's crazy. <clears throat> All the costs of maintaining a donor go into this pot. And say um, Dr. Fries is going to do a liver transplant and the liver is in Denver, Colorado. We have to send our team out to go get the liver and the cost of a Learjet back to here. <clears throat> All of that cost is put into a pot. The cost of preservation fluid. In the end, what they do is they divide up the cost for all the organs. So a liver, what is a going rate for a liver right now? It's $60,000, I think. Pancreas is $50,000. Kidneys are $45,000. That's just the cost of the organ. And that's just so the, the nonprofit donor organization recoups the cost. It's supposed to balance. So the cost of a pancreas is $50,000. Um, the cost of an islet transplant is $50,000. $10,000 for um, using the GMP facility to isolate the islets. Immunosuppressive drugs. By the time you're done, and then sometimes for islets, we need two donors. Now we're up to $100,000 and X, Y, and Z. So um, the $138,000 is the cost of the organs for the average transplant, so it's somewhere between one and two pancreases because we just added them all up, and that's how we did this number. So that's where these, these, these figures are crazy. What, what does it really cost to do an islet transplant? Um, when I talk to my colleagues in Australia, they make fun of us. They just say, well, you guys are crazy. We don't have to, we don't have to pay those. You know, it's $3,000 to do an islet transplant. So it's... It's, it's, it's a really hard question, and I'm going to give you a solution that's going to help us quite a bit. So, um, this if this is, uh, this, this picture was made by Julie Snedden, who's one of our, um, she's great, she's an islet biologist here, a stem cell person. And if this represents the one and a half to two million people with type 1 diabetes. We're only talking about type 1 diabetes. And we look at the number of people in the United States that benefit from a pancreas or an islet transplant, 
look right up here because it's going to show you right there. That is the number of people that we're helping with transplantation. That little guy right there, that green dot. Our supply is limited. We've, we've got to do something different. I think the technology that we've learned and how to do this is going to be applied, but we need a new source. This isn't science fiction. We're there because there are a number of people who can take a stem cell, either embryonic or an IPS. People can take their own cells and convert them into stem cells and then make them differentiate into a beta cell or a beta cell cluster. And they can do that in the course of a, what normally in development takes nine months. Uh, they can do it in about five weeks. It's pretty incredible. And there are two, there's actually three groups in the United States now that can pro produce beta cell clusters from stem cells, both from embryonic and from IPS, or derived stem cells. So we're there. We've got the beta cell source. Yes, sir? So if you use the... the... Yes, that's exactly right. If you can use their own cells, and they can make them using IPS cells, that's a little trickier than using an embryonic stem cell line that you can pull off the shelf. Keep in mind, though, remember type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. So you don't have to worry about, the, if you make them from your own cells, you don't have to worry about alloimmune rejection. You only have to worry about autoimmune rejection. But you still would need immunosuppression. And I can get into that a little bit, too, because there's ways of getting around that. But that's, that's, that is, the alloimmune response, by the way, is much more potent than the autoimmune response. If you can block the autoimmune response, you can block the autoimmune response. So probably it would be less immunosuppression to prevent the recurrence of the diabetes. Um, but suffice it to say there's two groups, one in Boston and one up in um, Vancouver, um, that have made these um, insulin-producing clusters of cells. The problem with stem cells is they are pluripotent, and they're at risk for forming other cells. The more differentiated the cells, the more likely that you've got a pure beta cell that won't make a little tumor. But the problem is, in a lot of mouse models, you, we've seen the stem cells that function, they also produce these little tumors. They're not cancers, but they're teratomas. <laughs> they're not normal tissue, and they're little tumors, and they grow. You can imagine if we did take, took these stem cells and injected them into the liver, all over the liver, and they started to make little tumors, then we'd have to cut out the liver and do a liver transplant. That's just not doable. Now, I say that because I think we are getting very close to having beta cells that won't make these little tumors. But personally, when I talk to patients right now, I'm not going to put them in the liver. I, I, I won't take that risk. Some people may, and some patients want to take that risk. Um, I don't. Um, I, I, I won't do it. Not yet. Not until um, I'm convinced that they're not pluripotent. So. I've, we've talked about the problem with the liver. Even under the best of circumstances, only about 20%, maybe 30% are surviving. So we need a new place. 
And we have been beating our heads against the wall about this. Because if I could say we took those stem cells and could put them into the arm, just under the skin, and they made a tumor. Well, not a cancer, but a tumor. If that happened, I'd say, oh, I'll just numb it up with some uh, lidocaine and we'll cut it out. And you'll, that's a risk I'd be willing to take. I think most patients would be willing to take that risk. Um, that's the site we want to go to. The problem is there has been very little success in putting the adult islets into the, into the muscle or into the subcutaneous form. We've tried. <clears throat> Here's what happens. Um, and this is going to get a little confusing because I'm going to talk about using some human cells, some mouse cells. I'll, I'll try to clarify. If we take mouse cells that express a, a, something that you can monitor with fluorescence, and you, you take mouse cells and you put them into the subcutaneous place or you put them into the kidney capsule of a mouse, you can see that, and, and then we can monitor by the fluorescence how many of the islets survived. You can see if we put them into the kidney, uh, somewhere around 30% survive. If we put it into the subcutaneous space, just underneath the skin, almost none of them survive. Stem cell-derived beta cell clusters, we, we were able to study these. Matthias Hebrock, who works in our diabetes center, who's our stem cell guru here, who also has stem cells, um, who's made beta cells from stem cells. If we take those cells and we put them into the kidney capsule, interestingly, they do a little bit better. But when you put them in the sub-Q, only 40% of them survive. And then if you try to put a capsule around them to prevent the immune system, which a lot of people are very interested in, None of them survive. So how can we make the desert bloom? How can we make this a great place to grow the islets? Um, and we have tried. So Kizi Tang, who is one of our transplant um, uh, uh, PhDs, she runs our, one of the transplant labs, She's tried to provide extra oxygen, extra nutrients, um, made an ambience like a pancreas, um, and even put the islets into scaffolds. Each one of those incrementally makes the survival better, but no, we were never getting insulin independence. And then I have a resident who's working on my lab, Casey Ward, who um, literally about two and a half years ago said when he was going to spend time in the lab, he wanted to study the use of parathyroid tissue to see whether that would make the islet survive. Why is that? Okay, so now let me just jump tracks a little bit. The thyroid gland, you know it sits up here, and the parathyroid gland sits up, is it four little dots, uh, little beans that sit on the thyroid gland, um, and they each have different roles. But when you have thyroid cancer, sometimes you have to take out the whole thyroid. And you do not want to render a patient hypoparathyroid because the parathyroids sometimes come out with the thyroid. Or sometimes they take parathyroids out for a variety of different reasons. But we found a long time ago that if, you, if you're worried about the parathyroid, taking out too much parathyroid tissue, if you implant some of it into the forearm, it survives. So Casey, my resident, was just on an endocrine rotation 
over at Mount Zion where he was doing parathyroid transplants. Another hormone, just like islets. Islets are a hormone-producing organ. And he said, well, maybe what is it about the parathyroid? And he did a simple experiment, and these are always the ones that seem to work. Um, he just mixed the parathyroid with the islets, and lo and behold, he got 100%, 100% of the islets to survive in the subcutaneous tissue. Not only that, now when we took adult human islets, adult islets, and put them into a mouse um, that's immunodeficient, which means we don't have to worry about the immune system, we could, with a minimal, a marginal mass of human islets, reverse diabetes in the mouse. We cure diabetes with, with adult islets in the subcutaneous position for the first time, and they survived only with this parathyroid tissue. He then went on to use Matthias Hebrock's stem cells. And these fluoresce. They're human cells. They fluoresce. They're human beta cells. And he found that they also survived, but only when he transplanted with human parathyroid. And finally, and most ex really uh, exciting results, if he took human parathyroid with human stem cell-derived beta cell clusters and put them in the, in, into the subcutaneous, actually into the muscle, right, right here in the forearm, and waited six weeks, he could reverse diabetes in all of the mice. It was the first time we were able to reverse diabetes with a stem cell in the subcutaneous position. And, um, you know, it, really exciting. You, those, these lines right here, insulin independent, only when we used a parathyroid gland. So now um, the sky's the limit, right? Because now we're thinking... Um, I have approval to do a trial. We're starting it next month um, where we're going to take people who are already on immunosuppression, people who have had a kidney transplant and have type 1 diabetes, or people who have a liver transplant and have type 1 diabetes. And we're going to use adult islets. And we're going to put it into, into the um, uh, brachioradialis muscle right here, just about a centimeter under the skin. And we're going to transplant it with parathyroid tissue from the same deceased donor. And we want to see if we can repeat what we've seen, this profound effect of human parathyroid on human islets. If that works, we're ready to do stem cell-based Therapies. The stem cells are there. They're ready to try them. I just won't put them into the liver. Some people will probably put them into the liver. I'm not ready to do that, but I certainly will put them here. And not only that, it looks like they're going to survive better here uh, than they have in the liver by using the parathyroid gland. Um, not only that, now, if the parathyroid tissue is working, um, there's a lot of people that are already jumping on um, using pig islets using pig parathyroid and pig islets, because if you can just put them here, there's, there's no, very little risk. Porcine insulin reverses diabetes. Um, I personally would like to go the stem cell route, um, but there's some, I know there's one person barking up the tree to use uh, xeno islets right now in parathyroid. 
so we're at a whole new juncture, and um, I, um, um, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, the potential um, because if you could take stem cells, we just pull them off the shelf. Not only can we help people with type 1 diabetes, we can probably treat a lot of people with type 2 diabetes. Um, it just is the question of uh, immunosuppression. Um, do you want to, if we can derive the beta cells from iPS cells, your own cells, um, and you have type 2 diabetes, then you wouldn't need immunosuppression. Only type 1s would need immunosuppression. So we're going to enter a really exciting era. Now, I say all this, and I've got to be honest with you. I've been here before. I've been excited about islet transplants. Um, the islet transplant community and Dr. Fries is just sitting there smiling at me because he knows we've said islet transplantation is right around the corner, and you've heard it over and over. But honestly, we've, we've seen the success now in the liver. And I've got my fingers and toes crossed that we're going to have success in the next year. We should have an answer. And then we'll, we'll jump right into stem cell-based uh, trials fairly quickly. So I, I'm really optimistic. I know I'm always optimistic. Um, but I am truly much more positive about the direction of this. Um, and um, it requires an army. I mean, if I show you all the people here at UCSF, um, that's the, the person, that's Kizi Tang who runs our immunology lab. Steve is our senior, just finished chief resident. He's now our fellow. Mike German, you may know some of these people. Mike is a, a beta cell biologist. And that's Julie who made that cell of a, that slide with the two million people. She's a, Jeff Bluestone is an immunologist. Um, then this is Matthias Hebrock and his group who makes stem cells. Uh, this is Tejal Desai. Tejal is the chairperson uh, in um, bioengineering, and she's working on the biosynthetic membranes to protect islets. Um, and that is my colleagues in the islet lab. That's Greg Zott, who is, a, is the national leader in being able to extract those islets. He can get an islet out of a rock. He's amazing. And... Um, uh, Andy Poseltz, one of my surgical colleagues who, who really runs the ILAP program. Um, Linda is a nephrologist who also um, works in the clinical research lab. Um, Joan um, and Tara, there are nurses, and Trish Brennan right there is running the trial that we're just going to, if, you want, if any of you want to talk to us afterwards, Trish is here, um, uh, it, this parathyroid trial, which we're, um, that trial, by the way, is sponsored by the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. Um, I don't know if you know serum. Uh, it is in, uh, I think it was in the nine, no, it was 2000, in the 2000, uh, early 2000s when uh, George Bush was president and there was a ban on um, federally funded stem cell work. The taxpayers of California, largely because of Nancy Reagan, actually, um, went out and she got bipartisan support uh, for the stem cell initiative. And it passed by 68% of the California voters. We're always ahead of the curve here. 68% voted to fund it. And this has spun off a lot of stem cell trials. And my trial is one of the last ones that's being done as part of that initiative. Um, it's up it's going to be up for re-election in 2020, and we'll see what happens. Um, and that is my surgical colleagues there. 
um, who always give me a hard time, um, but um, uh, really have provided me the time that I need uh, to do some of this work. So um, thank you, Dr. Fries. Um, and um, I'm going to end there and just uh, open this for questions. Thank you. So, yeah, it does. It produces, a, it works just like the parathyroid tissue. So let, there was a, a, a few questions there. So what is it in the parathyroid? We, we have a good idea what it is. There's 5% of the cells in the parathyroid turn out to be a stem cell. Um, a, not a stem cell, an adult stem cell, a precursor for what we call the endothelium. And that's, there's, there's CD, um, I, can't, I can go into the detail of the phenotype. Suffice it to say, those cells produce a bunch of factors. Some of the factors protect the islet in a hypoxic environment. Some of the factors cause angiogenesis or the formation of blood vessels. Um, and so, for, so it produces a bunch of factors, and we know what they are. We know what most of them are that cause the islet to survive while the, uh, while the new blood supply is, is moving towards them. And we think that's why they're doing so well. There's, there's a, a lot of reasons. It's even unpublished right now. Uh, Casey um, and uh, Tong are about to publish all the results with all the factors and what we know up to date. Uh, but we have a pretty good idea of what the cell is. What's interesting about these precursor cells, if we could learn how to derive those from stem cells. Now we derive, we don't need the parathyroid tissue anymore. We just need those cells. And you can derive those cells. There's people that are very close to deriving those cells. Now you can take those off the shelf, you can take the beta cells off the shelf, and we, don't, we won't be dependent on donors anymore. And that's where we have to go. So pretty exciting. Um, the parathyroid it still produces parathyroid hormone. So. That's a really good question, too, because no is the answer. Um, when we transplant a pancreas, I think Chris would agree. Um, you may want to weigh in on this. But we like to take donors that are slender and uh, because the pancreas is encased in fat. And the technical complications when you have a fatty organ, much higher risk of infection. So we tend to use lean, smaller donors. A big guy, I would be okay. My pancreas would be okay. Well, I'm too old, but my pancreas would be okay. Um, but um, a six-foot-two male, that pancreas is going to be hard to transplant just because it's big and got a lot of fat around it. But that pancreas has a lot of islets in it. So we could use that pancreas for islets. And so um, right now, I don't think the, the best donors for islets, they're not the same as the best donors for pancreas. Okay, so that's a really important question. And we, we have to discuss that because right now we have to use the tissue we have as efficiently as we can. Every donor, every donor we have saves a life. And we can't afford, we can't afford not to use it. So um, I think this island, we, we should save the really perfect pancreases from young slender donors 
for pancreas transplant. We should use uh, bigger donors um, with could be a little bit fat, but no diabetes. Those islets are really good, and we can get a lot of them. So important. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I wish Greg, I, I should have invited a lot of these people. Greg, this guy right here tells me that he, he doesn't like the really young donors for islets because the collagen, the tissue that holds them in, is stronger. So it's easier to sh shake the islets out um, from older donors. I think way older donors, probably not. But um, uh, in Japan... Um, uh, we trained a, one of one of our fellows is over there just visiting him, and he. Um, it's amazing what they do in Japan. They take donors for pancreas transplants that are in their 60s, and they have just as good of results as we do. And the reason that they do that is they don't have a choice. You know, brain death laws hasn't made it of all the places in the world. Japan is just about the last to accept brain death. They, it's, they've changed the law so that brain death is permissible, but the culture has not changed. So they use every donor. So they're using older donors for pancreas transplants and islets. Uh, Greg likes the older ones better for islets. His ideal donor is between 40 and 50 probably. So that's what a lot of, you know, because there's something, there's some doggone reason the pancreas, the islets like the pancreas. And um, the problem is the pancreas is this nasty organ that you cannot touch. <laughs> and if you inject the islets into it, you might turn on those digestive enzymes. Uh, that's, but but be, people have tried it in animal models for the very reason. It sort of makes sense. One of the things that's really interesting in the... Um, you were asking what, what's in the parathyroid that does this. turns out that parathyroid hormone... If you stain a pancreas, it has this thing called parathyroid hormone-like production. It's all over the pancreas. So now we have an idea. Lo and behold, wow, this parathyroid hormone, there it is right in the pancreas. And maybe that's why the islet's like the pancreas. But that was a total back... I'm making us sound very smart. We had... This was just... We just threw the kitchen sink and said, what lit up? And that's what lit up. So there you have it. Yes. Is there a capsule around the pancreas? Uh, there is. Um, it's a it's is a really thin capsule, but and we try really hard not to mess up with that capsule. Um, so yeah, there is. It's it, it's um, surgeons in general hate the pancreas <laughs> because it is a let alone transplanted. I mean, people think we're nuts for transplanting pancreases because of how fragile they are. But we do, we, we teach our fellows this very gentle technique for procuring the pancreas where you almost don't touch it. Um, you, touch, you, you, you pull it up by the spleen, which it's attached to, and then just gently uh, cut around it. But yeah, it's, it's a very hard organ to work with. You think just like we think. Um, I'm telling you. So we've done a few things. So we think that the islets don't like blood, so there's a capsule around the liver too. So a lot of people think, yeah, can you get them just under there in the capsule? And in the kidney, in, in animal models, 
we put them right under that capsule. We probably could try with the pancreas. We, we, we probably could try. But, but we're scared of it. <laughs> so, yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So are you, are you an engineer? You, you see, that's, that's exactly right. We, when we do a pancreas transplant, we, um, uh, so we reconstruct the blood supply to a pancreas before we put it in. And so, yes, right, and we don't disturb the blood flow to the islets. They're preserved. Um, so what the parathyroid tissue is doing is it's protecting the islets while the new blood supply develops. And um, one other interesting thing, the islets have a blood supply. They have vascular endothelium in them. And it turns out that that vascular endothelium is preserved if you culture it with stuff that the parathyroid produces. So not only are we increasing the rate at which the blood supply improves, we're protecting the blood supply that's in the islets that was sort of destroyed when we isolated them. But that's the problem with cellular transplants. And that's why this parathyroid thing is so cool. It's, it's sort of figured out. The parathyroid has figured out how to survive until the blood supply develops. I could show you pictures that would blow you away of the vascular tree in two days when you put the parathyroid in. It's just, it's really cool. So a lot of people have said we should use the patient's own parathyroid, but I don't want to mess around with surgery in the neck. I think it's, I'm, we're using the same donor that the islets came from. That's our plan right now. And ultimately, like I said, we want to derive those cells in the parathyroid from stem cells. It's not that far. None of this is science fiction. <laughs> People much smarter than me at this institution are doing it already. Yes, sir. In five weeks, you could take a stem cell and push it toward a beta cell cluster. Um, I don't know how you know. I, I don't know how you make new organs yet. I'm not in that business. But that's um, uh, well, it's going to happen too. But um, I, I think um, these beta cells take five weeks to grow. It's it's pretty amazing just using a bunch of different differentiation growth factors, and um, these guys have figured it out. This, by the way, if any of you are in in um, uh, interested in 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 getting down into the weeds about um, uh, these stem cells, this reference I found really great for. Um, uh, it's pretty high level, um, but uh, if you're you know if if you're tuned into the the science lingo um, it's a great um, a great review of where they were at with stem cell therapy in 2015 um, but it's those it, it, that guy who wrote that is the guy who's um, it's this this right here that those are his cells and they're the other cell line that's ready to go into humans sure one last question yeah so very interesting um, what happened is it was, so these are all immunosuppressive drugs. The way we get drugs in transplant now is we repurpose drugs that are used for other reasons. The drug that afaluzumab was being, and the same with Bilatacept, both of them, 
were being used for autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis. So there was a study of 4,000 patients, 4,000 with psoriasis that they used efaluzumab for. And while we were doing our trial, four of the 4,000 people developed something called JC virus, uh, which is fatal. And so they stopped it. But the, the trial was being used for psoriasis, and the average age was something like 65 to 70, somewhere in there, and the patients were giving it continuously. We just want to use it for induction, you know, at the time of uh, the transplant, or maybe for two or three months. But they used it for two or three years, and they got, lymph they got this problem with JC virus, and it was pulled from the market. And, and we can't get it back. We're tried, we tried to get it back just to try it, in it for experimental use, and they won't, they won't do it. It's a great drug. It's a great drug because it's given subcutaneously every two weeks. That's it. So you can imagine for, for folks with diabetes are used to giving insulin shots, all they have to do is every two weeks into the subcutaneous tissue. But it's a no-go. It didn't, didn't fly. It's really sad. We've tried. We've tried to get it back. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.